Jennifer Nichols here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1966, and our book is Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. Um, This book was a massive bestseller and was made into a movie the following year, 1967, um, which is maybe even more famous. Um, The story is about three women who all become rich and famous in movies, Broadway, and modeling, respectively, and simultaneously fall apart, and they take a lot of drugs in the form of pills that they call dolls, and uh, have a lot of very dramatic relationships. Um, It's all the things that you think it's probably about. But we'll talk all about it right now. Hey, Sandy, welcome back. Um, This book is one of the ones that you mentioned when we first had our Should We Start a Podcast conversations. And we didn't even know what the premise of our podcast was going to be, but we knew that there was going to be an episode on Valley of the Dolls. What is your relationship uh, to this book? Hello, Catherine. Um, what is, do I have a relationship to this book? I think that my, my primary oh. relationship to this book is that it is exactly the kind of book that in my generation your parents had, like all parents had this book. And you would read it to learn about sex. That was, you know, we didn't have internet porn, so we read things like Valley of the Dolls um, and Jacqueline Suzanne's other books to learn about sex. Um, and so, so I guess my relationship to this book and books like it is that my concept of adult life was formed by it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I think that... Um... I think I slightly missed this particular one generationally, but I can Mm -hmm. feel its echoes. And I I think a thing about it as well is that there is, even for a kid, there was a very strong sense of the 1960s posturing as the adult to the 1950s and 40s as innocent wide-eyed children who did not know these things about life and sex and drugs and so on. So so it was was also that there's like a generational posture of adulthood and cynicism about these kind of cultural artifacts. I did notice that it is historical fiction. Like, I don't think of it as being historical fiction, I guess partly because the costumes in the movie mm-hmm. um, and the styling of the book, the cover of the book is so... Like, sleazy mod. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much defined usually by the the portrait of Jacqueline Suzanne herself on the cover um, looking very, very 1960s yeah. in her wig and false eyelashes. Yeah. But the, um, the book itself, you know, the, the plot revolves around the idea that it's actually happening in the forties uh, or at least starts in the forties with mm. um, the studio system being it, that it's like Judy Garland era, not, Sharon Tate era Hollywood yeah. they're talking about even though Sharon Tate is in the movie yeah or even I, I believe the Helen Lawson character is based on Ethel Merman yeah um, which is really you know really going back and there, but there's and there's this wonderful feeling of like of Jacqueline Suzanne's actual knowledge of 
of show business and what it's like backstage and behind the cameras? There's definitely a lot of insider knowledge. And at the same time, I found it to be punishingly cynical. Yes. Like an upsetting place to spend this much time. Yes. And it's it's interesting that... Um, that this was that it sort of it turned out to be exactly what people wanted and ate up. Like <laughs> the idea of escapism was very different. Yeah, and I, I think that the the cynicism even goes to the point that that she says that she knows what she, what people want to read on the subway. It was in one of the it's like maybe in the Vanity Fair piece that we read for this mm-hmm. um, that, that she knows what people want to read. And what they want to read is about rich and famous people being destroyed. That she want the people want to encounter glamour, but then also they want to believe that it is bad and that their lives are yes, bad. absolutely. Um, but I actually found the glamour to be almost unconvincing until they started with the pill popping, honestly, because they just talk about mink coats, like they're talking about boxes of Cheerios or something. (laughs) It's like, you just have to have a mink coat in order to sort of show your face in certain contexts, but they're so interchangeable and they're so unsensuous that even the vision of glamour itself is so sort of soulless and transactional. The sex is so unsexy it's like the yeah. the determination to destroy these people is the drumbeat of the book. It's a book without real. It's it's very strange because you really have to bring your own pleasure to the book. Like the the book will mention a mink coat, and if you want to fantasize about having one, as you know, a nineteen sixties reader, then you can do that. But it's not going to do any of the work for you of finding a mink coat sensually pleasing. Exactly. Yeah, there's no feeling of being the person in the mink coat or slink, you know, having a slinky dress under a mink coat and slithering out of it for your uh, mm. botched lover or anything like that. The scene where Anne actually does have, like she loses her virginity and it is with the person she wants to be with and um, she experiences sexual pleasure, which is like, let's just say a shocking minority of all of the sexual encounters. In the <laughs> book. Um, but it starts with her, like they're in a hotel room and she takes off all her clothes and looks at herself under the kind of bare bulb. And she's just like sh- shivering naked and under this kind of exposed light bulb in the hotel room. And I was thinking the determination to punish and destroy these women is disturbing. Yes. And, and we, you know, we, we will definitely get to Jacqueline Suzanne's biography and where she was in her life writing all of this stuff pretty soon. Yeah. So, Cause I think that, that, you know, a lot of this, like once you know her biography, it reads really differently. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But there is the the pleasurelessness of it. Like we, it's really summed up in the Neely O'Hara, who's the Judy Garland character who gets the stardom, which turns out to be a poison chalice. There's this wonderful section where she is at the height of her fame and success, 
but she's just overworked and managing to keep herself going through pills and her marriage falls apart because she's never there and she loses her children. And it's, it's all kind of summed up in the fact that she has the pool, she has the house, but she can never even swim in the pool because getting a sun, suntan doesn't work with Technicolor. Yeah. The one part that actually did have a feeling of sensory release is the pills themselves. There's mm. really pretty great descriptions of getting high. <laughs> um, and what a relief it is from the kind of burden of uh, consciousness that these people are all encountering all the time of this world that is so blisteringly hostile to them that no yeah. matter how much they succeed at anything, everything is just a humiliating slog except getting high. The love for the pills feels very genuine, whereas the love of the characters for each other does not particularly come across. No. And there's no joy in singing. Like I was thinking, I bet jo Judy Garland at some point in her life, like the, the consolations of a career like hers and having a voice like hers would be being able to use it. But there's no sensory pleasure in, in any of the art forms that they are excelling at. Yeah, this is definitely a book written about great talents by a person who was conscious of having no talent and bitter about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and seeing talent as only a bargaining chip in a series of transactional relationships where the women are just always screwed over. Yes. Talent and beauty I'm, as well. I mean, the beauty thing is also interesting because Jacqueline Suzanne was not as unsuccessful as a beautiful woman as she was as a performer, but she certainly, like, she apparently was known to have an inflated idea of her own physical appeal. Um, and again, like that's a strange place to inhabit as a woman. And I think that kind of comes across. She's very fucked up about people's physical appearance in this book. Yeah, I, I was thinking at the, for the first maybe third of the book, the ways that um, Helen Lawson is described as an aging woman. Um, oh, God, yeah. I was like, <laughs> it's like I actually, I, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to read something else. This is actually just, it's like reading Black Beauty. You know, it's like, <laughs> they will not stop whipping that horse. horse yes, yes. Helen Lawson. Jobs. So Helen Lawson being the, the Ethel Merman character, who's like the oldest generation of performers in the book, who from the very beginning of the book is already too old, even for Broadway, and only manages to get by because of her unbelievable singing talent um, and she's treated like as an idiot savant in the book <laughs> like all she yeah. has is the voice <laughs> well and then these descriptions of the her pancake makeup cracking around her eyes and her dis disgusting uh eyeliner and uh mascara how it's like spiders or whatever i don't even remember all the details I actually took a bunch of notes and I don't even want to revisit them because the description of like her waist <laughs> thickening and her hips God. Like, I was like, oh, this is a lot. all of it this is a lot <laughs> and and then and then 
she even has to lose her hair at the end and um she gets in a fight with neely o'hara in the in the toilet it has to be in like in the restroom in public as well in front of the toilet attendant and and so neely o'hara grabs her wig off her head and flushes it down the toilet she's stuck in the restroom for the rest of the night until everyone leaves because it's too shameful to go out without her hair i mean it's (laughs) it's really like an incredibly cruel treatment of a woman's aging body, of a woman as the inhabitant of an aging body. Absolutely. It is, um, it's interesting how many of these scenes, the movie, which is kind of known for being campy and over the top in every dimension, it, it softens a lot of these scenes significantly. Mm. And I think that that's... Um, like you, you have a sense that Jacqueline Suzanne is writing about her own self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Like, but it is a lot of her own self-loathing. It is a lot <laughs> of her like midnight to 3 a.m. thoughts about uh, her prospects in the world and what she could ever be valued for. I think there's something disturbing about a person who wants to write a book like Black Beauty about just the punishment of the body over and over and over when that body is your own in some way. Well, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for it. I feel like a lot of people go through that at some point. Um, of course, there doesn't seem to be a lot of insight here, though. It does seem to be very much on the side of the abuser. Yeah. Um, and, I, and that seems to have been Jacqueline Suzanne's only move. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the other thing, like the next thing I should say. It's not the only other thing, but the next thing that is incredibly disturbing about this book is how it treats disability. <laughs> yes. Yikes. Oh my god. It is so weird. <laughs> and you know, you you know, it is the one plot twist that nobody will see coming. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to spell it out? Spoil everything. Okay. Spoiler S P O I L E R. Um, so the Jennifer North, a different character we haven't talked about. There are three main characters Ann Wells, Neely O'Hara, Jennifer North. So Jennifer North is kind of the glamour puss. Um, she's not based on Marilyn Monroe, but she's kind of a Marilyn Monroe type If Marilyn Monroe was just hot and had no talent. Um, and she, her, pl- her big plan at the beginning of the book is to get married to the singer based on Deep Mar- Dean Martin, actually, called Tony Poehler. <laughs> but Tony Poehler is always being chaperoned by his sister, who won't let Jennifer North be alone with Tony Poehler. And she follows them around everywhere. And the only time Jennifer can be alone with Tony is when they're actually in bed having sex. Um, and she's very frustrated because Tony is very childish and just just says, oh, my sister Miriam handles all that. You know, I have to talk to Miriam. Miriam will decide. And she can't get him to marry her because then finally she manages to elope with him and get him to marry her. And basically what transpires is that Miriam is not controlling exactly. Miriam or Miriam is controlling, but it's because Tony Poehler has some kind of very unrealistic developmental disability which gives him the mind of a child and all he can do is sing 
like, again, this treatment of talent as if it were, <laughs> you just had a voice and that was all it was. But, but anyway, like, this is all, I think, becomes like exponentially more disturbing when you know that Jacqueline Suzanne's only son was autistic and she and her husband had him put into a home when he was still a very young child and left him there his whole life. Yeah, I, I was reading that he's, I think, institutionalized to this day. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. The story that the sister tells of having this baby and the, the sister's significantly older and she, she raises the, the brother as her own. Um, and she talks about loving him so much and then having this idea that something's wrong and then going to doctors, the doctor's... Um, not being able to help and her just frantic determination to protect him from the world and protect mm-hmm. the world from him, even if it means that she just has to give up her entire life and walk around um, beside him, basically always making sure that he has sex, but never produces a child of his own. Uh, which is so she t- eventually tells Jennifer all of these things and Jennifer gets an abortion so that she doesn't end up with a child with the same genetic situation, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only reason the secret comes out purely in order to prevent the existence of this child. Exactly. Yeah. But the fact that the sister is fat is something that <laughs> the book does not stop mentioning that what is the what is the price of being a person who actually does commit to a child with some developmental disability fatness and having no life of your own whatsoever ever again and wearing the wrong shoes as well you don't you know wearing the wrong clothing yeah and like generally just being this humiliating adjunct to the world yeah the the number of ways that people can be um, just devastatingly humiliated. But I would say only the women other than maybe Tony, but I don't even think like, I think Tony's fine. Right. Yeah. It's unclear if the men actually have um, subjectivity in this book though, to be fair, they don't seem to have much of an emotional life. Well, they with, the exception, with the possible exception of Henry Bellamy who's like the paternal figure in this book. Yeah. And Henry Bellamy is, um, I think genuinely pretty sympathetically written character. I just think that there's a lot of scenes where there's a man who is giving a woman advice because he knows what's really going on in this situation. And the fact that the woman is unable to navigate the situation is always something that everyone involved agrees is her fault. Even though the book shows a picture in which there is no right answer. There's nobody who is not being destroyed at every single turn. Yes. Which is, and there is no right choice. You know, you, you can have it all, but every part of it will be, will be poison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that having your own money and making wise investments as Ann Wells does will mean that your husband w- will find it impossible to love you 
<laughs> yes. um, describing a woman as strong is always an insult in this book. It's just another way of humiliating. It's like calling a cockroach strong. Yeah, there are so many things about the book that are, I mean, it's interesting. In a way, it's a nightmare because it's written as if it were an expression of the most extreme kind of self-hatred that a woman like Jacqueline Suzanne could express. And, you know, just just like spinning it out in all of these cartoonish ways. And yet, in a sense, she was right about how she would be seen by the world because it was a number one bestseller forever. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that that's, that's one of the things that I thought about Twilight when that book was the number one bestseller forever. I mm-hmm. thought in some ways it's like, it's a bad, um, it's a bad example for how you should run a relationship, but it also is getting at something that feels emotionally true. Mm-hmm. And it has its own, distorted but completely emotionally committed weirdo vision that is very much the author's own and nobody else's where um by the time it gets to the demon pregnancy that is like killing her from the inside it's like yeah sure okay then the your ex-boyfriend falls in love with the baby yep that (laughs) that's part of this world's very strange but very committed vision that does have this feeling of reality kind of like flowers in the attic i think Mm. that was how i reacted to that book and that was how i expected to react to this book but this book felt like a layer more cynical than that where i was thinking i don't even know that this is her authentic vision i think she believes that people's desire to see beautiful women being ruined is just, it's like, she's just like, I'm just going to feed you this because I know you want it. Well, I just want to put in that we're talking about this book in isolation, but it's it's part of a whole genre of books that, that I think of because of my personal generational position as the books your parents have, um, which all had this worldview. They were all like this. There were, you know, they all included things like plot lines, like the plot line of Jennifer North, the the glamour puss character, who's always defined by her big, beautiful breasts, eventually having to have a radical mastectomy and deciding that rather than lose her breasts, she will kill herself. But not only this, but she, she is in a sense, right, because the love of her life, the man she's just met and she's going to marry actually tells her just before she kills herself that as long as her breasts are all right, he doesn't mind what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the world actually like reinforces her view. That's how cynical it is. But that's how all these books were. That's how all of those Harold Robbins books were actually worse. They, you know, they actually were kind of pro-rape as well as all of this. Um, yeah, this, this book is definitely considers rape to be I don't know, like getting in a taxi. It's just like a completely normal, utterly banal part of city life. <laughs> You're just, you get raped like yeah. pretty much five times a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it's the whole, the whole world was like this, I guess, is the, is the difficult thing to, yeah. to believe. 
And, and it seemed to be that people actually kind of thought that if you were going to accept that people could have sex, then that meant being really cynical and, and treating people as commodities in some way. I, I don't even know, but it, but I, I remember this like it was that it was an era that was full of people giving each other sex advice, and this is like I'm about ten years old at this point, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of like gleaning the sex advice as I grow up, and the sex advice was all bad. It was all just this crazy fantasy stuff um, that was predicated on accepting a degree of rapiness and an idea of big breasts being the most important thing about a woman. And it was very much this world. Yeah, I was thinking that there's a lot of books that are not from that exact era that also, I mean, like the the Ferrante Neapolitan books and uh, Edith Wharton, I'm thinking Custom of the Country and to some extent mm-hmm. House of Mirth, that are also just... Um, about the like a series of humiliations that end in destruction for a woman, absolutely no matter what she chooses to do. Yes. And yes. I, I don't think that people usually write books like that about men. I'm going to say, except black men, probably like, a, like invisible man mm-hmm. kind of. But then I was also thinking that, um, Carrie Fisher's and Debbie Harry's memoirs are, they're kind of about this world, but they also, they don't accept Suzanne's premise that, that there are no consolations in any form of humor, joy, pleasure, uh, art. Do you know what I mean? Like, have you read either of those, either of those women's memoirs? No, I haven't. I haven't. I highly recommend both. Uh, any amount you want to read of either of their writing, I think is very interesting about being in the public eye as a sex symbol, still wanting to maintain a sense of humanity and that you are in fact in control of your body and your image and your what you're projecting into the world, even if part of what you're projecting into the world is hotness and in a world where you're also aging pills, drugs, plastic surgery, whatever, Mm -hmm. those are somewhat the, um, the medium that you're moving through, but you're still a human being and you're still a person. And it's that feeling of still being a human being that I think is missing (laughs) from this book. Yeah, nobody ever just it's it's a, it is very um there there are actually so many things that are that are missing from it. Like there you never get the sense here in this book that anybody in this world, which is the world of of show business, so there are lots of intelligent people in it, that anyone ever does anything interesting. Yes. Or that is interested in anything that anyone else has done. Or oh there's a new there's a new show, there's a new movie that does something artistically interesting, that the idea of art is completely absent here. The only reason people do any of this stuff, even even writing books is like subtly about 
succeeding and being famous. And just racking up those mink coats that are all identical fungible commodities with no, no glamour. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad, actually. It's a, it's a deeply sad and joyless book. It is, yeah. Um, and, and I often think, like, how, how great must life have been in the 1960s for people to actually decide, like, need this as a refresh, as a kind of refreshment from their everyday lives? Well, it, <laughs> I, I think that her idea that, that people would read this and then go home to their boring but possibly cozy lives and feel better about themselves, that they're not doing all of these things, it, again, seems just blisteringly cynical to me. And then if you read <laughs> the books by people like Debbie Harry or Carrie Fisher that were actually living this kind of life at this kind of time, more or less, you see that in fact their lives were extremely cool at this time and it the, the they were also terrifying and violent and dangerous mm. and occasionally you know humiliating and terrible but they were also really interesting and full of that sense that that it's possible to get what you actually want by having a life in the arts well i just want to add here that but as a as a person from from another age, but a person who grew up with Jacqueline Suzanne, I also read her first book, which is a dog memoir. Yeah, yeah. Every Night Josephine. So it's so like I was I was one of those kids who read everything with a dog or a horse in it. Aww. And so <laughs> so I read Every Night Josephine. And that's about her. You know, it's about her life and her dog. And and Jacqueline Suzanne was not a joyless person. She was actually really funny and really irreverent and you know like a little mean but but not like a really happy kind of fun loving person who really thought got a blast out of her life in showbiz so so it's 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 just kind of interesting that the joylessness is something that she has put on to her actual personality in order to be more successful and it worked yeah yeah I think that that's a really, I think that's a really good analysis. Yeah, people in Middle America were not ready to hear that you went into showbiz and you had an open relationship with your husband, and your husband basically supported your career, which is her her life story. Her husband yeah. just supported her career, um, and was kind of her secretary. And you're the big star, and you f- fuck other men and give people blowjobs in the movie theater, and <laughs> know all of these movie stars and have a bunch of mink, mink coats and you love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, the article that we both read from um, the New Yorker, Michael Corda's uh, wasn't she great? Like a little memoir essay about Jacqueline Suzanne and meeting her. That was not a joyless person. It was not a person who was uh, inured to any sensory pleasures. You know, the scene where he orders a steak at this very fancy restaurant. And she says like, no, you could get a steak anywhere. You should be getting the things that my husband and I got. And she starts scooping food onto his, <laughs> like, like put scoops of her husband's food and her own food onto the steak. And then he's like, uh, maybe I'll just wait and eat when I get home. Um, <laughs> but it, like, it, she sounds like, uh, somewhere between a charming oddball and, 
an upsetting oddball just in some of the details of what he's saying and just, you know, some of the other things she definitely seems to feel free to burn a lot of bridges as she goes through life. At the same time, I don't think that she actually is one of the people in this book. I think that this is a thing that she thinks other people want to hear, which I guess is what we've been saying this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think she rightly understood that, that if you wanted to write a big bestseller, which was her, her stated aim in writing this book and her next two books, then you did not present a character who was like Jacqueline Suzanne. <laughs> yeah. Or if you did present anything like her, because the, the character she's definitely most like would be Helen Lawson. Helen Lawson has a lot of Jacqueline Suzanne in her. Um, and yeah. so she, she was punishing herself in the way that she knew middle America needed to see a person like her punished in order for her to exist. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the, the side of it that just felt like, not like it left a bad aftertaste in my mouth, but like the whole taste was bad. I don't know. I, I was expecting it to be more of a campy joy. And I think maybe the movie is, I don't know that the book is at least the way it felt to me. It felt like guess, like condescending to me in some way, maybe. Well, I would agree. It's cer- certainly readable and it's interesting. Yeah, but yeah. It's not. It's not a book like it's not a book that I wanted that I was looking forward to reading. Oh but, no! <laughs> but on the other on the other hand, um, I do like somebody that I know. It was like her favorite book growing up, and she even got in trouble and like junior high school, because she did a book report on Valley of the Dolls where she made this kind of show and tell thing that had like a little carousel with pills on it. <laughs> and, and she knew she should have gotten an A for this project, but she, but she was instead sent home an ignominy for choosing an inappropriate book and doing something inappropriate about it. Um, and you knew already that she was going to be the cool one in the class. So, so there's that side of it too. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that the the one side of it is the obviously enormous appetite for this kind of material that you were talking about. And then the other side of it is the um I, like I think that the 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 idea that is haunting this book is the idea of the good wife and mother. Um mm. Because the this is it starts with Anne refusing to marry and stay in her sort of stayed upright small town and become a good wife and mother that she wants to go to New York instead and live this more interesting life and sort of have experiences. And then over and over, there's times where people like where a woman needs to kind of hit the reset button on her life for some reason. And she has to say like, Oh, I just want to meet someone nice and just get married and have babies. Mm. I, of course, I just want to quit my job. Of course, all I want is to just be a good wife and mother. And the book ends with Anne succeeding in becoming a good wife and mother, except that in the course of her interesting life, she's become rich and therefore has more money than her husband which means that he feels humiliated and that obviously kills the love and he will only ever like betray her with her best friend. And and then she has to become a pill addict because, you know, her attempt to become a good wife and mother was thwarted. The 
movie ends with her refusing to marry that man, like understanding that what he was offering ah. was, was not um, was not good. And so that's that's a difference that I haven't actually watched the whole movie, but it's a difference that seems telling of kind of how the the movie wants to soften what the book actually is doing, which is just that if you take any turns in life other than just heading directly to good wife and mother, um, you are just going to be punished endlessly for that. But there is this sense that there's another way that a woman could be, which is that you would never have a book written about you. You would have your name in the papers when you're, what is it? Born and married and die. (laughs) I don't even remember that the urge for experience is a thing, but there's another thing you could do, which is to have a quiet and private life with your presumably boring husband in a boring town. Which is a thing that I don't think Jacqueline Susanna ever actually considered as a real possibility that someone could do. It's that's not, that's not a real thing that people do as far as she's concerned. No, she's condescending to people who did by making them yeah. think like, she's like, buy my book where I tell you that, <laughs> that there's nothing good out here in the world of having cool experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was, she is like really like the queen of sicko energy. I got to say, like, it's so true. It's so like, true. I'm just going to give like one thing from the, from the New Yorker article, which is so sicko energy. Um, so this is from the person who was her editor after for the next book with the love machine that she wrote. So Jackie wrote on pink paper and she had apparently not yet discovered the shift key on her typewriter. She wrote everything in capital letters like a long telegram and added revisions in a large forceful circular hand in what looked like a blunt eyebrow pencil. I mean... <laughs> There's something about like she she doesn't want to shift, but she chooses to write in all capitals instead of in lowercase. Um, yes, <laughs> um, there there were so many parts of that article. Anyone who's listening to this who's even faintly curious should go and look for it because that was yeah. that was um, a lot of big the, the shoe story. The story about the shoes at that dinner was unbelievable. That when she gives the editor, her husband's coat that he just had this, like has this embroidered line. It doesn't fit him. Just give it like, to him. You can have it altered. Yeah. He's like in tears about it. And she just keeps on pushing. Like you have to take it. You have to. He loves it. He wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. And the husband is weakly saying, isn't she great? <laughs> and then playing the, uh, playing the tape of her singing badly, like over and oh, over. Yeah, like, yeah. And giving him free, free copies of the tape. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, you know, it's not just big sicko energy. It's like a Dom sub relationship. Everything about it was just, just like, you know, like there, there are moments where like when, when it's revealed that all she has in her refrigerator at the peak of her success is a can of dog food, a jar of capers and a bottle of Dom Perignon. <laughs> <laughs> Like you can see why people would want to be that woman, but for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that it's like, you know what it's like, the the thing that I mean about the good wife and mother that's sort of hiding in 
the implied audience of this book and also the character that she would never bother writing about because it's not interesting to her. It's sort of like she is writing a book in the eighties about a satanic daycare. <laughs> like she's feeding into some anti-feminist moral panic about what happens if women don't just be good wives and mothers, even though obviously that is who like she is this person of experience. She is this person of forcefulness and strength who's out there having all of this very strange and storied career. Uh, Sorry about the grammar on that sentence that she is the owner of the satanic daycare, (laughs) but she's also feeding into whatever anti-feminist moral panic might be happening. Yeah. And behind the scenes, she's saying to her editor, actually I'm team Satan all the way, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I think that maybe that's the feeling of, um, it's like, she's not giving you her authentic vision. I think it sounds like the dog book is her authentic vision. It seems like she has a lot of authentic visions about her dog. Yeah, she gen- she genuinely loved the dog, that that we can definitely say. Yeah. And this isn't like Flowers in the Attic, where she's telling you something really true about herself couched in these terms that are kind of bizarre. But No, it's honest. absolutely the opposite. Like it is the Flowers opposite. in the Attic is like unfiltered female eroticism and this is the negation of all of that and and it does feel like this is actually a book that she wrote after she had cancer and had a mastectomy and there there is a lot of like bitter mastectomy energy in this book yeah there's 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 bitter uh institutionalized child and bitter mastectomy and um bitter I'm no longer 20 and I'm pretty sure that nobody values a woman over the age of 24 Mm -hmm. anyway but there's no there's I couldn't find any excuse for the homophobia that that there seemed to be no biographical justification for I know is also just tiring just taxing and she just couldn't get through 10 pages without the f word it wasn't the, there were there was like one character who was bi, but she could not stop. Uh, uh. Yeah, well, and it, but it was men in particular that she just felt so offended by homoeroticism among men, because uh, Jennifer, she is the only character who seems to have any kind of sexual pleasure, and it's because she was taught by a woman who was her first lover. Maybe yeah, who's lover, but like her first. He's a little bit lady. possessive, but more or less sympathetically drawn. It's not, you know. Yeah, and it's not. It's not a weird stereotype. It seemed you. It made you think. Well, probably Jacqueline Suzanne had dabbled in yeah. herself. That's, yeah, you know. it it felt like she was talking about a real ex girlfriend. That yes. that a woman might have. Yeah, the rest of it is all this stuff like oh, because because your career was too successful, my dear wife. It made me sleep with men. Yes. <laughs> and it's treated as if it's true. And then he just finds a younger woman who is not going to dominate him and he becomes straight. Well, that, that's, that's the character who is Neely O'Hara's second husband. 
Yeah, and that's even like the crowning humiliation is that he doesn't even want men. It's that she's so terrible that he is driven to sleeping with men. And then when he finally gets the strength to get what he really wants, it's a much younger woman. Yeah, this is like... It's like, oh. There's so, like, the 20th century is actually full of, like, weird narratives about men overcoming their homosexuality by finding a woman who's subservient enough. Oh, and having really like ecstatic sex with her. You can think like people, people really got the wrong idea from this. Uh, in the wife's pool that she never gets to swim in. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, so the other thing that's really kind of interesting just to, from the point of view of this era in literature is to think about how books like Valley of the Dolls exist in the same literary universe with books being written at roughly the same period by people like Philip Roth and Saul Bellow, um, that there's just this, there's a similar sort of consciousness of sexuality and in a kind of a scandalous way that you can manipulate that scandal and the interest in sexuality and the prurience, I guess. There's a lot of prurience or an awareness of prurience in all of these books around this time and how you can use that in order to get attention, but also that it genuinely is like like that that feeling that sex is being invented and that people are discovering it for the first time. And a combination of, of a knowingness that is being projected by the author, which to us, and maybe even to people at the time, is just not convincing. And there's this weird kind of naivete. Like you, re- you read the works of Norman Mailer and it's absolutely ridiculous. Like he's, he's prating about sexuality and it feels like he has never had sex. Did you listen to our mailer episode? Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree with you that there's there's like the uh, gay Talese style, like man goes to a strip club, <laughs> like uh, venture into the unknown idea that this is something that that could that could be unknown that could be a venture uh i there's there's that and then there's also there's a long riff in the anatomy lesson the philip roth book that i think about a lot that is about himself his author stand-in character as um like marilyn monroe where being sort of an object of pornography, sort of a pornographer, and then also trying to say something serious about life, about being a real artist, being a serious artist, um, but being aware that everyone is watching her movies because they're expecting the, the tits, you know? Yeah, and then yeah. he's like, "I know that I have to deliver this, like basically every such and such number of pages in order to keep people reading," and that uh, it's more complicated than I'm saying. But I think that that I think that you're right that all of the writers who were writing in this literary world were s- sort of writing Valley of the Dolls. Yes. And it's, it's really, okay, just two more things. Yeah. Um, there's even 
a kind of a treatment of this in Valley of the Dolls when the Jennifer North character goes to Paris in order to make what are art films, which are defined more or less as films in which she is naked. Um, but they're, they're treated as if everyone receives them as art films and actually treats them as art films. And this really was a feature of the time that there was a confusion about whether something was Lolita and therefore it was acceptable for it to be sexy because it was art or whether something was treated as art because it had sex in it and therefore struck this pose in order to... Anyway, there, there was a lot of confusion about that point. Um, and now I can't remember what the other thing was. Um, I, it... I think that the, the Valley of the Dolls is more cynical about the possibility that her, that she's not just being naive when she's saying like, Oh, it's a real movie. It's a real art movie. It's just that I'm completely naked while I'm getting into the bath or something. <laughs> uh, and that, that, that she's essentially in pornography and is lying to herself about it. I, this is my impression of, of how the book treated her French art films. I don't, I, I actually disagree. I think there was a kind of, of art film, faux art film at the time that actually was accepted in, especially in America as an art film. And it wasn't, it was something that was kind of somehow straddling the space between Emmanuel and Goddard. Yeah. I mean. Oh, I, I agree with you that it existed in real life. I just don't know that the book believes that she is serious, that she's a Oh, oh no, I, I think the, I think what the book was, I think the book's point of view is basically that all French films are just, just getting an audience by showing boobs. Yeah. And their idea that any of it is art is absolutely patently absurd. Oh, and um, the number of times they repeat that she has no talent, absolutely no talent. <laughs> absolutely the least no talent, talent. That anyone could possibly have. <laughs> she has zero talent, but she has this amazing movie career for some reason. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, I, I, I remember the other thing that I wanted to say, which you, you may want to cut, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Um, another book that I keep thinking of, which nobody reads anymore. It's never going to come back in, in you know, a Grove Atlantic edition as Valley of the Dolls has, is a book called Coffee, Tea, or Me, um, which was... I've heard of a, that. I haven't read it, but I've yeah. heard of it. Well, I obviously would never have read it if my parents had not owned it. <laughs> but <laughs> again, like a book from which I learned about sex. And it was about the, the comical adventures of two stewardesses um, and mostly their kind of risque adventures, which were never explicitly sexual. It was, you know, it was for, it was not as, as daring as Valley of the Dolls and it was definitely very cheerful. Um, but the interesting thing about it was like, it was all about the, the idea that stewardesses were hot and had sex and they got to jet around the world and and have sex. And it turned out later on, as you might have known, that it was written by a man. And pretending to be one of these stewardesses telling about her life. So it was all just fantasy. And it was like something that was written in order to impersonate what people liked to think a woman who had sex experienced and wanted and dreamed about. And, and I think that like, if you if you like had a continuum, what like Mall Flanders, the Daniel Defoe novel? It, I mean, it's by a man, and yeah. it's like supposedly I mean, the confession of a <laughs> hussy. It's very much, it's very much the same kind of 
marketing idea as Mall Flanders. That's that is true. Yeah. Um, um, so I actually had one more thing to add. Also, I just watched awesome. the Agnes Varda movie "One Sings, the Other Doesn't," mm-hmm. which is about women who have sex and abortions and children, and it's explicitly strongly feminist and just about how feminism and access to reproductive health care and female friendship, et cetera, really is a form of strength and liberation that is only beneficial in these women's lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's lovely in a lot of ways. I really enjoyed it. But there's one scene toward the end that I was like, "Mm, this feels like the naivete that you're talking about, Sandy, which is that the teenage daughter of one of these women who has sort of come up through the, like really, I guess just about exactly the same age as the uh, Valley of the Dolls women, um, like from the fifties to seventies is sort of the scope of the movie. There's this girl who's a teenager at the end. And the idea is that she just never has to suffer for like that sex never causes her the kind of suffering that it caused her mother and the Mm. women of that generation, because she never didn't know that she could have an abortion. She could have birth control pills, um, that she was free to say no and that she's free to say yes. And there's this scene where her boyfriend, like she has some, you know, attractive older teenage boyfriend and she's a younger teenager and he's like, Oh, Hey, want to go do it? You know, some teenage style, uh, seduction like that and she's like no I don't have to just because you whistle doesn't mean I have to put out or whatever something like that <laughs> and I was like um this feels hopeful it feels wishful that that's how teenage girls would feel post-sexual revolution and that that's what the interactions between teenage boys and teenage girls would be like in the world of the pill and abortion access and so on. I don't think that it's reality. I think that the feeling of hatred against women's ambition and sexuality in Valley of the Dolls feels like it's, there's a reason that probably that this is massively more successful than the films of Agnes Varda. our episode on Valley of the Dolls. Thank you as always to Adam Bear for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, uh, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next week.